Collective Nightmares podcast. My name is Marshall Smith. And I'm Laura Patterson. And we are sociologists who talk horror movies. I've had a lifelong interest in horror movies because I am skeptical and suspicious of the so-called normal and typical more so than I am the deviant or the disobedient or the outlier. So Marshall and I have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I've always had an interest in horror movies because kind of paradoxically, I really think that it's through our most horrific experiences and our most horrific traits, that people have the greatest ability and the greatest need to connect with each other. As an aside, thank you to my parents. They bought a sort of package starter podcasting kit. So we actually have like real microphones and headphones, a little uh, mixing board that lets us suggest volume. And we're hoping that that pays off in sound quality, especially once I actually figure out how to use it. <laughs> We sound so amateur. We do. I think you should have, should have held back the part about your parents buying it for us. Oh, well, well, I think it's nice. It's supposed to be a thank you. Oh, it's incredibly nice. I mean, no, it's incredibly nice. Why, why did you sound <laughs> amateur to have our parents? I mean, it's just a gift. It's very nice. Oh, it was a gift. So thank you, Mom and Dad. I don't think you have any idea what I'm doing. My mom definitely doesn't. I tried to show her what a podcast is, but she's getting there. So anyhow, okay, we are starting another one of our infamous projects along the lines of... Lagier entire 2018. <laughs> right, right. Lagier 2018 and Rape Revenge. I don't know what time period that was. It didn't drag on quite like the Lagier. It was supposed to be April, wasn't it? I feel like so, it was supposed to be one month and it turned into like eight. Oh, Lagier? Yeah. And Rape Revenge was like spring. <laughs> it <was a> season... <laughs> <laughs> the spring season of rape revenge films. So we watched The Human Centipede with the intention of watching the trilogy. And so if you are joining us for these discussions, prepare yourself now, I guess. Prepare yourself for the Human Centipede first sequence, second sequence, and final sequence. The IMDb synopsis for The Human Centipede first sequence from 2009 is... A mad scientist kidnaps and mutilates a trio of tourists in order to reassemble them into a human centipede created by stitching their mouths to each other's rectums. Written and directed by Tom Six, working with his wife, Iona? Ilona? It's I-L-O-N-A. She executive produced it and produced it. Anyway, but husband and wife team, and they completed all of the movies in the same roles, I do believe. And what's your history of the, with the film? So I saw it once before, and I, I think I saw it on Netflix, or maybe it was like a bad downloaded version or something. It was, I remember there being very bad quality, like bad audio quality, like maybe the sound wasn't synced up with the mouths. And just like, you know, if something has a bad internet connection, like it's a little bit fuzzy. Or I remember it looking amateur in that way. And... I underestimated watching it the second time how much of a distance I think that created for me and watching it because I, I really disliked it the first time around, but I really disliked it a lot more the second time around. I mean, viscerally, it was just an awful experience and so much more awful when it was, it actually looked good and sounded good. And I could see that it was, it was well done. Like it was well shot. It was pretty, if that's the right word to use. Yeah. So I had seen it once before, but I, I think I a little bit underprepared myself for diving back into it. That was a terrible experience. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> I I don't remember when I saw it. I think I watched it with I think I watched it with a girlfriend at the time it came out. <laughs> she was open to these sorts of films and discussions. And I don't think I saw it in the theater, which is kind of disappointing. I think I watched it at home. I I'm sorry, I'm going to take a step back. So there'll be spoilers for this film, The Human Centipede. 
And if there are going to be other spoilers, I'll cut it in here. I don't know what to tell you if you're a listener because we're watching, going to watch these in order as the trilogy, and we're going to talk about them as pieces of a trilogy. So there may be spoilers for the second and third film. My qualifier for that is, and I was actually thinking about that, the spoiler was really spoiled, and it's spoiled on the poster, and it's spoiled in the, just maybe the first thing that's kind of interesting. It's I remember it for sure being spoiled in the preview, because once you see the diagram, or once you see a glimpse of what's happening, even really if you have any idea from the poster, no, I don't. maybe not the poster, but that's the thing. I mean, just it's called Human Centipede is... I mean, there's not a lot more than that to spoil in terms of plot surprises, which is kind of interesting in and of itself, I suppose. Maybe. I was thinking the same thing when I was watching it, that I almost wish it wasn't called Human Centipede because I was trying to have the experience of somebody watching it at like a horror festival or something. I mean, I knew it was going to happen, but I was just pretending, seeing that it was actually good quality. What would this have felt like to see just the first time around having no idea what it was about? And then I had the same thought like, oh, I would really wish that I didn't already know exactly what it was going to be about because it's really a pretty creepy lead in and it's it's filmed so well. And the the doctor, I don't remember his name, but he was so incredibly effectively creepy that it really was a pretty good even though it was a standard kind of setup. It was it was scary. I, I do remember distinctly that it was spoiled in the trailer. But yes, I agree. If it, I don't know what else you would call it. I don't know what else you would call it, but I do agree that if the centipede were as a reveal in the film, that would have been a much more effective strategy. Because uh, as, it, as it was, with, with having a pretty clear idea of what was ha- going to happen going in, it, w- it really became a matter of how and when, which I guess could be okay, but um, I don't know if you want to watch the trilogy because <laughs> we don't know uh, how long it's going to take us to wade through the three films. And all of that is a long prelude to the fact that I don't remember this film in particular because I was very intrigued by the second film. I know I've seen the second film at least twice. And and then the third film I've seen most recently. And so I guess, not I guess, so I have been desensitized to the concept. And watching this, there were sort of pieces I remembered that I guess were not from this film. And I didn't find this film that difficult to watch. It was interesting. It was well shot. I think there are a few things I noticed that I hadn't remembered. And then there were some things I remembered that weren't actually in the film. But I was really able to watch it more as without a real strong reaction to it. That's interesting. That was exactly the opposite experience I had. That's why I said I was in the mood to watch it today, because I thought I was going to have the type of experience you're describing. And I was in the mood for something almost, I don't know if mindless is the right way to put it, but just... Eh, you know, whatever. It'll be kind of, again, fun seems like the wrong word, but that's what I thought I was in for. And instead, it was like, wow, this is awful. This is just a terrible, terrible experience. I wanted to turn it off multiple times throughout the movie. I just couldn't wait for it to be over. Interesting. Oh, okay. So do you want to talk more about what your experience was? Well, now I think it sounds fun to talk about it. Now that we've had a little bit of distance from the film, actually, now I'm glad I watched it. When I was sitting there watching it, I thought, man, I ruined my whole night. Why did I do that? Like, I don't want to be feeling any of these feelings. There's nothing redeeming about this experience. Uh, But now that 15 minutes passed and I got a glass of water and we're just sitting here enjoying each other's company and talking, now I'm glad to be talking about it. So overall, I think the experience will pay off. But uh, I just thought it was terrible. And and I'm going to have to bring this conversation back to the house that Jack built sometime soon, because I think it ties right into that whole idea of what counts as art and art. Can art be devoid of humanity and still be art? Because I, I kept thinking about those types of questions as we were as we were watching this film. It's terrible. Just terrible. Why would you want to sit there and watch people suffer for an hour and a half? It was... So you had a really a torture board reaction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hate to interject, but so yes, there will be spoilers then, I guess, for The House That Jack Built the recent film by Lars von Trier. And 
there will likely be spoilers for Kuso because my f- my first question for you, Laura, with having you having said that, is did you have the reaction of that abjection and that disgust of Kuso, or was it a reaction of just sort of the offense and of or of uh, torture as spectacle? Definitely the second, but that's a really interesting question. I think what what differentiates it from Kuso is that Kuso, the experience I had in Kuso was that Kuso identified like a category of experience that I actually didn't know existed prior to watching Kuso. And then once it identified it, it was so obviously a category that I've had carried around in my head for my entire life. And I just didn't realize that this, I don't even know how to describe it, right? This category of just sort of offness. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. That was really an interesting learning experience. Like I feel like Kuso taught me something. And then the fact that it just playfully hammered at it for the next hour and a half, it felt like it was allowed to do that because it even identified to me that that was a thing in the first place. And that somehow made the experience feel worthwhile. Whereas this, I already knew that it would be awful to watch somebody be tortured. And so that's not like the experience, the emotional experience I had wasn't a new emotional experience or it wasn't sort of a, a it, it didn't, split hairs in a way that I found intellectually interesting. It was just very obvious that we're going to do something terrible to this person and you're going to watch. And so because of that, because I think it wasn't an interesting emotional experience, it was just horrible. And it just felt like, why would somebody want to sit down and watch this film? That's really where my mind kept going throughout it was, I guess there's shock value. You would watch it for the sake of seeing where a boundary is, like how, how bad can I feel? And it really did a very effective job of that. I thought it did. I, I I wanted to applaud it for that because I I'm always impressed by something that can make me feel anything very strongly. And even though it was an awful feeling, the fact that I felt it so strongly, I thought, well, that's an accomplishment of some sort. I don't know why else would you want to see it. I have two thoughts. One is I feel like a fair amount of people ask that question about a lot of the things we watch, just horror in general. Well, why would you want to watch that? I mean, yeah, Rape Revenge is a, cl- a great example. Like, why would you want to watch not just a, a rape uh, a depiction of, you know, sexual assault, but then pile on top of that and watch elaborate, you know, vengeance and violence in response to that? I'm just saying, I think that people have that feeling. I had somebody in the bar say to me when I told them about the podcast and I've heard this before, like, I, I don't really watch horror movies because I have enough horror in my own life. And so it's interesting that we've gotten to a, that, that there's a relativity there, I guess, with what constitutes <laughs> something that we can't imagine being of interest. And I, mean, I think the marketing, I think the film, I think the concept and the premise is really all about, it is a spectacle. I think it was presented as a spectacle. It's, a, it's understood as a spectacle. And it is really kind of a uh, sort of maybe a feat of endurance, if anything. It, it, I mean, I and I, I'm gonna have to go back to this too. It was, it's really, um, it really made me think of Two Girls One Cup, where like the interest in watching it is like, can you sit through it, and what are the limits of what you can just force yourself to watch, which is interesting, kind of in and of itself, because I feel like that's a recent development in life in human life like you didn't we didn't used to have just a catalog of file that you could pull up and be like oh what's what what do i find most upsetting in the world let me search out and find you know a particularly upsetting example of that particular thing (laughs) i mean that's not something that's existed for a long time so I think why some of those shock videos really took off, you know, a little bit before this, but kind of mid-2000s, early 2000s. I think I agree with you. I think it's it's not so much a recent development in humanity, the desire to look for that. You know, the desire to put yourself in a position where you are just watching some sort of absurd spectacle that you feel like you can't handle. But you're right that with the advent of the internet and the ability to seek out sort of fine-tuned examples of things that you find particularly repulsive. That is a different, a different development in society. I kept really wanting to harken back to what we talked about with the house that Jack built. And you raised the issue of rape revenge and why would anybody want to watch that? And I do think there's a difference. So one of the arguments that I made when we talked about the house that Jack built is that 
even when you're watching a movie that's about something horrific or any kind of art, when you're depicting something horrific, it's generally what people are drawn to is not the horrific aspect of it. It's the humanity that that highlights. And that generally gives opportunities for people to, to experience human emotions, you know? And so the, and that happened in this film as well, that you see something so terrible, but what you're really drawn to or motivated by in the film or in one way, what you can be motivated by was, you know, the, the two girls caring for each other and this desire to see like good versus evil. And you want good to overcome. You want them to get out. You want him to be punished somehow. That's what really pulls you in emotionally. And I think things with things like rape revenge or even other types of horror movies, what I often find interesting in them is that by not looking at the world through rose colored glasses and not sort of sugarcoating humanity and the, the breadth of human experience, it opens you up to seeing humanity in situations that people go through all the time. And I'm not referencing the human centipede exactly, but the types of emotions that people undergo. And you can then, you can see it, you can talk about it, and you can really have camaraderie with people in those arenas. And I think that's really useful and it's really interesting. And it's always felt to me like a bit of a, I don't know if this is a stretch to say like a public service, but that if you actually create art that is true to experiences that are unpleasant as well as pleasant, then you take the things that are really hardest for people, which are often the unpleasant experiences they're going through, and, and you give them a place to kind of commune in that and to, to experience, you know, just a, a support and, and even, I don't know, feeling like other people understand what that emotion feels like. And so I can often see that in horror and even in, a, in the category of something like rape revenge or whatever. I, I can see those types of humanity peeking through, and that's what draws me to them. But in The Human Centipede, I felt very strongly like that was really minimally present, which is what made me keep thinking back to the house that Jack built. And, and in the house that Jack built, I think the premise, at least my interpretation of the premise was, let's see how we can, we can discuss art that is completely devoid of humanity. And this wasn't completely devoid of humanity because you had the girls caring for each other and you did have this kind of good versus evil struggle, but it was pretty close I mean, there was relatively little interaction among people and like the types of emotions that it stoked and the ways that it stoked them really weren't complex or complicated or interesting. They didn't really harken back to a lot of real world experiences. I mean, no more than like a chase scene resonates with everybody to some extent because you want the person who's fleeing generally to like get away and you want the aggressor to not be able to be a terrible person, you know, a little bit, but there was minimal interest in terms of in terms of identifying any place for human connection or like commonality of, of human emotions that this brought up. And that I think to me was what made it so awful. It just it felt like you're watching all this terrible and what you're getting out of it is not any sort of like redeeming view on the world or you know something that that can be emotionally helpful. <laughs> it just felt like a big pile of ugh for like basically no purpose, which did bring me back to the question of the house that Jack built and is this art, is the fact that it's pretty, which it was really, and it did evoke feeling, does that count? Or part of me wanted to just slam the door on it and say, no, I'm sorry. You just, you don't count. You don't, it doesn't matter if you're pretty. It doesn't matter if you're good. It just, you're a terrible experience and you should go away and you should never have been made, which I find interesting. I don't feel like I would say that, but that, that was feeling I had throughout it. My first response to that is there is also an argument. It is probably not a popular argument, but that would there is an argument, for example, that some sort of cruelty or some sort of despicable behavior in film in particular can be a release, a vicarious, for people who have those inclinations, they can vicariously release them enough so that they don't enact them in the real world by watching the movie. So if they're going to watch some sort of sadistic porn, that may let them vent those tendencies or experience those tendencies enough that they don't actually go out and commit that behavior, which I feel like is a really interesting direct contrast to what you're saying, where it can be presented as this like catharsis and this, we can watch this to understand how to bond together in a response to this horror, sort of the in-group, out-group, like the more that they're an out-group, the more we are an in-group and we can take some solace and cohesion and solidarity in that. And that, that assumes that, you know, it's, it's actors in, in porn who enjoy that sort of thing. So they're doing it and they're having a good time and they're doing it willfully and with awareness of the, you know, consent and the 
possible risks and all that. So for them, it's not actually harming them. They're they're gathering, getting pleasure or whatever they're getting out of it that they've decided is worth it. And then somebody comes along and watches it and is like, oh, well, I feel these things. Like, I actually might want to do these, but this is enough that now I, didn't, I can quell that. I just felt like that maybe said, I don't know where I was going to go with that. Well, the first place that makes my mind go is, is that art or is it just, okay, I mean, if that were true, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, I'm not yeah. necessarily disagreeing, but if that were true then maybe it's helpful, but I'm, I'm back to the house that Jack built. Does art require humanity? Does it require human connection? And like, if I can show you something that will stop you from like murdering somebody or something, I guess that's a good thing. But would I want to sit through that? And like, what do I feel in that? Because if I'm not feeling any sense of connection to anybody other than maybe sure it's utilitarian or even beyond it being utilitarian, let's just say it doesn't help anything but there are some people who enjoy it and maybe they enjoy it in some way that would offend my sensibilities of we should all love each other and stuff. But if it doesn't hurt anything, if it doesn't make them more inclined to do anything awful, you know, if it's not actually causing harm, which we'll get into the second human centipede at some point with that and hold off on that. But, but if it's not causing harm, then maybe it's like, it's fine. Sure. I guess it could, like, I don't have a right to say it shouldn't exist to them, but but is it art? Is it art? Do I get to covet some sort of we have to love each other in order for it to be art? It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like I should. And yet at the same time, there's part of me that almost feels like, yeah, yeah, I should be able to do that. So you're sort of at the argument of this is completely devoid of redeeming. Not really. It just made me feel that way. I, I, I think it, that was just, that was my emotional response to it. And it was certainly... I disliked it for that. I, it's like I want to lob that. I, I feel like I'm angry at somebody. And it's one of those fights where I know I don't think I should really win. If you really sit me down and call me down and talk to me about it, I'll admit that I don't actually have the moral high ground. But it makes me really strongly want to. I really do just want to tell it that it's a terrible person and to go away and die in a hole somewhere. And like, I don't get that feeling very often about even things that are rather difficult because I do often find these glimmers of like, hey, this is really serving a purpose. And I just don't feel that way with this one. Except that then I know that where they go with the trilogy. And so I do know that I think they had a bigger argument they were trying to make, which would then come back and sort of contradict what I'm saying. But, but based just on the experience of watching the first one, I do kind of want it to just go die in a hole somewhere. I feel like we started off really abstract. I wonder if we might just talk about the film itself. And maybe we'll find something worthwhile in it <laughs> other than other than it's a prelude to a trilogy that uh, before we do that, I think it's interesting that well it will be very interesting to see then what our how our discussion goes for the second and third, but it's a lot to ask of an audience. take your experience to come away from a film like you're saying I was disgusted I, I just really didn't get any humanity out of it. I didn't get any sort of artistic experience out of it. Now you should watch a second one. <laughs> you should watch a sequel. <laughs> is, uh, I feel like it's really optimistic on the part of the sixes. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder then, that does raise the question of why make it and why make it without, I felt like there was much more social commentary and artisticness and symbolism in the second film, they certainly seem capable of that. So why withhold that so summarily in the first one? It's, it's a bold strategy. It's, it's a bold <laughs> strategy, uh, Tom. Let's see if it pays off. That's an excellent question, Marshall. It really is, because my experience when I watched it last time, I know was that I also hated it, although slightly it was a slightly subdued feeling of disgust, I think. But afterwards, I would never have watched the sequel there's no way. And the only reason I did, I, I, I don't know if it was on Netflix or something. It was somewhere where there was like a, it's like an ad, like a little screen for it. I remember looking at a little shot of it and the shot was captivating because the, the actor in the second one is just interesting. But, and it was black and white. And I, I think I had seen the first one fairly recently and I had absolutely no interest in watching it. But that little screenshot was just so interesting that I thought, I'm just going to hit play for like a second. I'm just curious. What, how's it even start? And I was sucked in I watched the entire movie. I was totally captivated. And by the end, I thought the second film was really, I, I hesitate to say great after the experience of watching the first one, but 
it was, it was super interesting and had a ton of social commentary and made me rethink the first and made me want to watch the first one again now so that we could have these conversations. So that's a really good question. If you did have those intentions, which they must have because they set out to do a trilogy, right? These were from the the start intended to be a three-part piece. So why give away no clues of that and potentially alienate a huge chunk of your audience? Had I not seen that screen clip, I would never have clicked on it and never have known. So why not give some wink at the fact that you have something to say? Was it not the human centipede two and three that I like asked you to watch? There was something that was either a double a double film or or the second and third of some. Maybe it was or maybe it was the first and second. Anyway, but I had suggested to you or had asked you, and you were like, and I thought you were just going to watch one, and you were like, oh yeah, I watched them both, and I was like. Was that not a human centipede? It, that may have happened because I didn't watch the second one on purpose. I know. I feel like it was fairly soon after. So did you watch first. the first one again and then just watch the second one? I think you may have. I've only seen the first one once. Once you well, have twice now. So what was that? What else could it have been? It may have been the human centipede. I mean, it may have been that you said you asked me to watch the first one and I did, and then like a week later I watched the second, and maybe next time we talked I'd seen them both. I could have swore you watched them like just back to back. That's. Or maybe it was. I don't know. It was. I, I didn't mean to watch it, and I was disgusted. I remember being disgusted when I hit play and thinking, I just can't help it. I just have to see what they're going to do with this one little screenshot and then getting totally sucked in. It's entirely possible. Maybe it was the same night. I don't remember. That in and of itself is interesting of, I'm going to watch this. I pretty much know I don't want to see it, but I feel compelled to force myself to see it, or I'm compelled enough to hit play and watch it. It's, it's really what the film is premised on, is that compulsion that I guess enough of us had that it, he was able to make two more. But the second one looked interesting. Like the, the second one looked so different and so much like it, just so different that I couldn't help but see what they were going to do. And then it really did suck me in immediately because it was actually interesting. The characters were actually interesting and, and it had really cool social commentary that related to things I was thinking about at the time about about exactly how awful the first movie was. It's like the second movie commented on my exact experience of watching the first film. And I can't help but want to hand them credit for that. Yeah. But you're right. Again, it's a really ridiculously bold strategy to not let any of that out, to just make the first film as it is. as just a piece of atrocious spectacle. <laughs> and then just let it sit there for two years. Like, there's my movie. <laughs> it's right, for two years. Because it's a very... The premise and the setup is very, uh, very cliche. Two girls lost in the woods, two sort of clueless tourists who are, are incompetent, they're sort of spoiled, and they come to some house out in the middle of nowhere and horrible things proceed to happen to them. I can't think of a particular movie offhand, but that, I feel like that's a pretty classic trope. There's a number of those films. And... It's very, it's very clinical. I would say the color grading is very clinical. It's that green, blue colors, white, very uh, cold light, very cold coloring all the way through, even the outside, even the outdoors. Really the only color are his art of some sort of bizarre surgery and conjoined babies or whatever it's on his wall. And, the, and then blood is really the only color in the film. I want to revisit that just because I would like to hear what you thought of. Do we think that there is a strategy behind who the people are in terms of gender and race and nationality in particular? I find it interesting that he has a white man that is going to be the lead and he is rejected through because of tissue, whatever. And so then it ends up being an Asian man, a Japanese man specifically. And that is interesting to me, I guess, because Japanese, Japan and Germany were two countries where fascism, they were allies in World War II. Fascism took strong hold. And I mean, I don't think there's a way to talk about that without... And to talk about like a German surgeon without thinking of Holocaust and medical experiments on death camp prisoners. And 
And then there's Japanese or Asian men in general are, are really have a long history of being treated as effeminate or less masculine in U.S. culture. So it really is uh, sort of a decline in masculinity, if you will. I mean, I know I'm kind of reaching here, but I just wonder if it's worth because we go to the Asian man who's in lead and then two white women behind. And I guess the cops are white men. The other thing is why, why even set it in, why set it in Germany or Germany, right? Cause there's American actors. They have America, they have Dieter who Dieter laser who played the doctor. I think he must be German cause he's definitely sounded like a heavy accent, but they have him speak English, but the Japanese, person speaks Japanese. It's very, I don't know, that's just such an interesting, like you could do this whole movie and just set it in rural Arkansas. Wasn't it filmed in the Netherlands? I think it was set in Germany, but filmed in the Netherlands. Which is even sort of more interesting of, yeah, so yeah, filmed in the Netherlands. But it was supposed to be set in Germany, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it, because it they said they were It is set in Germany, Germany specifically. Yeah. So he's Dutch. Tom Six. Yes, thank you, because... If you're listening, you can't see that. I just pulled it up on my screen. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. That's fine, but he, he he said it in Germany anyway. So he's not setting it in his home country or his native tongue or whatever. I just, why do that? Right. And I, I would be much more inclined to dismiss it again if it didn't, if he didn't go on to, this is part of some massive project and he has progresses to films with commentary and symbolism and and then you know what i noticed the big revelation for me watching this and i don't know how or why it happened the first time i'm sure the first time i watched it was on dvd but at some point we turned on subtitles to hear what Dieter laser was i sort of assumed that we were not supposed to understand what the japanese person was saying and he has his monologue where he says I have acted and lived my life as though I'm an insect. I'm just trying to decide if I'm still human. And then he commits suicide, which is, I think, also interesting because the Japanese cultural history with spuku and self-sacrifice and suicide as penance and, and all of that to have him do that. But that monologue, I do not remember that the first time watching it through of him saying, I have lived as, a, as an insect and this is the price I pay. And you as doctor must be God punishing me for how I've lived. That is a, there was something there. That, that like this other stuff, it could be incidental, like, oh, how many actors can we get who are willing to walk, walk around taped to somebody else's ass? But, <laughs> but that was a very clear reference to something bigger, right? I agree with you. I think that now that you say that, I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm glad you asked the question of diving into was there any redeeming content in this movie? Because that was, I think, the most interesting scene in the movie. And for the reasons that you're highlighting. And also, I just want to throw another component into this mix that you're putting out there that the gender stuff was noticeable as well. And I didn't know how intentional it was, although it, it seemed like it was that that the women are put in the back, that the women are silenced because only the man at the front can speak. And then it was also interesting tying into what you're saying that although the man could speak, he spoke a language that nobody else was speaking. I don't know if anyone else could understand it, but I had the impression that they couldn't. And I had the same experience the first time around. I don't remember being able to understand what he said. And so I don't know if those subtitles were meant to be there or not, but it was, it, it sort of dehumanized the whole centipede in that the women couldn't talk and then the lead head kind of could, but not in a way that anybody could understand and made the whole, the scenes where, you know, he, where the uh, Dieter was treating it like a, a dog that was keeping him up at night or something more poignant. Um, but then also in line with the women being silenced, even the, the lead man then, and I noticed this this time around with the subtitles, when he was speaking to them, he would yell back girls. They were just, they were in, inseparable. They didn't, they didn't matter as separate individuals. It was just like the back of the chain. And I want to say that Dieter referred to them that way as well. I might be misremembering that piece. I'm not sure. But I, I, at least that thread came up when I was watching it, thinking if it's unintentional, it's a reflection of just society's inclination to lean that way and to not notice that that would be 
a stereotype that might get perpetuated even without doing it intentionally. And if it is intentional, then I wonder what the intention was in in setting up such a cliche gender dynamic there. Yeah, and that's reinforced by early on in the film where the only characterization we get of the girls is that they're talking to their friend and it's sort of vapid conversation. And one of them thinks some German waiter is cute and they're going to go find him. You know, there's no, we don't know anything else about them. They're road tripping through Europe. We don't know. I mean, we could have said we're going to museums. We're going to, we're following a band around Europe or anything, but we don't get any of that. And then the first guy who pulls up and doesn't help them talks all this dirty talk to them about, oh, he he calls them porn stars. Like, you must be, you know, I think I saw you in my dirty movie and you're constantly horny and yeah, fuck you. And like gives them this rude tongue gestures and reduces them to that. And, And there is a theme of dehumanization throughout, for sure, as if it's not. As he, I mean, as if it's not overwhelmingly in your face. Anyway, he he talks about you know I first did this with my Rottweilers, so now I'm literally putting you in the position of dogs who I abused in these same ways. But there is no sexuality in it. He never he never. I mean, they're they're you know uh, naked except for their bandages. But there's no eroticism in any part of the film that I thought, and there's no sexuality of the girls. I never felt like they were, there was an objectification of, there was never the lingering panning body shots in a, at least not an erotic way. We see the gradual reveal of the centipede. When they first show up at the doctor's house, his first, having just gotten out of the car, like you said, we know nothing about these women and we get really cliche, awful characterizations of them. Really terrible. They see that the guy comes over to help them and not help them and just talks to them about being porn stars and, again, is kind of awful. And then they get to the door, and the first thing that the doctor does when he opens the door is look them up and down. So there is that. But then from then on, you're right, it's it's gone. But they they sort of set up a very demeaning role for these women and then immediately proceed to, like I said, silence them and put them at the end of the chain. Just as a note, I feel like their lines are written sort of intentionally bad and they're I feel like their acting may almost have been be you know act as though this is a B movie where it doesn't really matter what you have to say just say the lines and it can be not quite right and it doesn't I mean it was like given, given how pretty the rest of the film was and how there was acting throughout the rest of the film up to them being pulled in, it's bad. <laughs> it's really bad. Uh, to the point where I, I do wonder if it was not intentional. I distinctly had that impression the first time around. And this time I actually thought it was better because I was expecting it to be so bad. I remember from my first experience watching it, them walking through the woods and thinking, I just cannot even handle this. It is so awful. And I do think there was some sort of audio issue happening as well that made it even worse. But I mean, their lines are terrible. They oversay each other's names in a way that has to be intentionally terrible. Like nobody says Jenny like 700 times in a conversation. Like you don't do that. You're the only two people in the woods. Jenny's right there. She knows you're talking to her. You don't, maybe you emphasize something once. You don't do it every single sentence, like 10 sentences in a row. That was weird. It was weird. I still don't necessarily have that figured out. Another thing that I noticed is that throughout the film, water is really linked with danger and harm. It starts raining when they get out of the car. The pool is is fraught with danger several times throughout the film. He drugs them with water. Throughout the film, I don't know what that's about either. And that may just be, it may be something more of bad weather being associated with negativity sort of generally and gray and bleakness and but rain can also be very cleansing, and it definitely wasn't. The rain it really pushes them even even more, and it also puts them in this more vulnerable position because then they're all wet and things are a little bit more see-through or clean and are more revealing. And I mean, their outfits weren't particularly slutty or just like shorts and heels. And I don't even know what the other woman was wearing, but they weren't. 
I don't, I mean, nothing was like mini skirt and two top or I don't know, whatever else would have been sort of a cliche. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't catch that, but you're right. I also want to tie things back to the, the Japanese man's monologue that you talked about and the gender stuff that we're talking about, because one of the things that I found most interesting about his little speech, and again, the fact that the women were in the back and were silenced and he gets to talk and he gives this talk about, is this my punishment? Is this what I deserve for leading a terrible life and hurting other people? And then he kills himself which is the most selfish thing he could possibly do in that moment, that's completely disregarding these women behind you because he has a weapon. The doctor is incapacitated and has a weapon. He's the only one who has the ability to fight and to potentially get them out of this situation. Like he could save all of them in that moment. And instead he decides to just kill himself, which is horrible. And again, treats the women as just this appendage that don't matter. Yeah, absolutely. And he talks about, like I'm paying the price for the life I lived. And I feel like it's, at least in Japanese culture, I feel like that's often like a sacrifice. There's a nobility in suicide, or at least a uh, an integrity or an honor in suicide if you're doing it for the right reasons. So he sort of gets to feel like he's doing something sort of right. I can't remember exactly what he said that led me... But it was sort of like, okay, I have to pay the price. I understand now that I owe for having lived how I did. So now I'm going to kill myself. But like you said, that absolutely disregards that the fact that he's sewn to these two women. And, and regardless of anything else, they can't do anything with him dead. They can't move. What are they going to do? Drag him and move backwards? And they can't. Yeah. Just one thing I want to say that it very much metaphorically ties into the idea of them being silenced and him not that he gets to take the stage, make this about him, make this about his life and his penance and his sacrifice. And they don't ever get that opportunity. And that just felt that felt like it was reinforcing overall what was going on in that chain. So do we think that there's anything in there that suggests to us? (laughs) I feel like within our society, particularly within capitalism, there is this notion that, I mean, we talk about things like shit rolls downhill. And the other expression I'm thinking of is like eat shit or eat shit and die. These are things that people say to each other as insults. There is an argument with capitalism that we are all in being complicit in the system. We are waste becomes what other folks have to live on. And I would love for there to be some sort of critique or or commentary there. And I don't know if there's anything there, but I guess I just want to ask the question of, is there anything in this that would support this idea that he's making a commentary about, about that notion? I like that so much. I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no also. I like that. And everything that we've just been talking about, kind of combined with that, all of these, playing on very obvious, I guess, stereotypes in ways that even though we can outline that we can sort of see that there was probably some sort of intentional, intentional or unintentional, but if it's unintentional, it's societally induced, then use of stereotypes in ways that just perpetuate problematic situations that have existed for a long time. I don't think that there's a redeeming message behind any of that. I think it's just in line with it being spectacle. I think it's just putting it out there. I, I don't, I, I do, I still wish there was something because I, I don't think there is. And I don't know how he would have done it, but I, I I can't think of anything that would really support it. But I was thinking the the middle woman, who is supposedly the worst, I guess it, he says is the worst position, Lindsay. Oh, it's, I was going to say Jenny is the gen tail. So he does sort of refer to her individually though at the one point, but it's in regard to like, oh, we can just cut you off <laughs> and replace you with like something else. So she's being punished. She's in the worst position, which is the middle. And I feel like the Japanese person had a little bit of like, the Japanese man had a little bit of guilt or questioning when he was offered food. And it's like, oh, well, if I eat food, that means I'm shitting in a the woman behind me and had like a little hesitation. And then it's like, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat. Uh, And then the woman in back dies. And so it's like, well, we know, I I don't know. I just, I could make up a bunch of, I could make up something about 
capitalism, the people at the bottom just totally get killed. And the people at front, they at least have some autonomy and choice, but they're still trapped in the system. And the more they consume, the more they're going to shit on somebody else. But, eh, still much easier to eat eat something than go hungry and not shit on people as much. Because especially when you don't have to see them. I I can make up this whole story, but I just don't. You know, I'm so glad you said it at least because now I feel like there's something redeeming coming out of our conversation at least if it wasn't That's in the good. film. I, I enjoyed that. And I don't there's think some it was there. I wish it was. White man at the top of the chain who's like, oh, this is for science. How fascinating. Also, I get a pet. <laughs> I was completely oblivious to. <laughs> I like that. I'm almost willing to call this episode on that. <laughs> I just can we can we discuss very briefly the second the tie-in between this one and the second because I'm having a hard time having this whole conversation about the value of the first without at least a nod to the fact that the second really does use the fact that this is a spectacle to make a strong ideological argument and we don't need to super dive into that but I, I do think it's worth noting that if they had all three planned out in advance although it is a gutsy and bizarre move to make the first as pure spectacle and then the second very much so as commentary on spectacle the second film really does use the awfulness of the first to its advantage to make, I think, an interesting moral and ideological point. And something about the way you said that, I do applaud. I am one to applaud in an extreme argument. And I suppose if you're going to make the first one as a spectacle without redemption, there's something to be said for do that, take that as far as you possibly can. And something I did notice was this film starts with him looking at a picture, which the picture is, I think, of the dog centipede. Yeah. And then the second film starts with him watching this film. So it's progression from still image to moving image. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I like that. There might be something there. I I like that. And I do think what you said is, is worth repeating, because even if that ends up being our closing point, I think it's worthwhile that the first film being such pure spectacle really does help the argument of the second film. I mean, it, the first film is just a tr- atrocious, abhorrent spectacle. And the second film is based around what happens when people, why, when you put a abhorrent, awful spectacle out into society and people watch it. And I think is really commentary on then the morality of the existence of the spectacle in the first place. Like, can you have it? Can it be art? Again, maybe we're back again to the house that Jack built, but can it be art and can it be allowed to exist? Even though when you let it go in society, people are going to take it potentially to really bad places. And and I think the second one really comments on the, really the morality of that, whether it is okay or isn't, like whether the, the existence of the first film is or isn't okay is I think the point that the second film gets at and does so really effectively and really interestingly. So knowing that that's where they're going with it, in a way, I agree with you that I, I applaud its awfulness if that's really what you're going to use it as as a prop in the second film. And, and they absolutely do. I mean, there's no question that that's what the second film was directed at. But man, I like you said, it is an incredibly bold mood move because I, as someone who was very open to that argument and really interested in the second film when I saw it, would never have even turned it on because they gave you no indication whatsoever that that's where they were going with it. And to just put off everybody and then really for, what, two years let it just hang out bizarre and almost makes me wonder if it was somehow unintentional or something, except I don't see how it could be, but almost kind of cool in a way. I hate to say that since my whole argument has been that this film was terrible, but at least if I leave thinking that film does not deserve to exist, I applaud you for making a sequel that exactly addresses my concern that that film shouldn't exist in a really thoughtful way where now suddenly I'm super engaged in the conversation because you're talking about something of interest. Right. I don't know. Right. So, If you are listening and you have not seen the second and then presumably not seen the third as well, and you were very much on the fence about this first film, we, I I think I can say we, will make a very strong argument that the second film is not only worthwhile in its own right, it is so worthwhile that it is in many respects, redeeming of the first film, or at least at least does an admirable job in justifying the first film, more so than I really thought could be done. Justifying, or at least 
I don't know, it just gets more complicated. Because I think when we talk about the second film, a lot of the conversation is still going to be around, does something like the first film deserve to exist or should it not? And so I don't think the second, I don't know, in some meta sense, like I don't know if the second film really makes an argument. I don't know if the second film being interesting means that the first film should have existed in the first place, or if the argument by the end of our discussion really should be, which I still want to leave on the table, that they should all just implode and go away. But it at least speaks right to that conversation, and you got to give it credit for that. got to give it credit for that. All right, and if you've listened to this this far, uh, <clears throat> well, presumably you're not listening with your kids. <laughs> But if you are, I'm actually going to take this to a, to a different level and we'll see if we cut this out or not. But if you made it this far, this is enough for you. This is a good stopping point. Um, and I feel like there has to be something brought up about the fact that there is a fairly prominent subgenre in porn that is ass to mouth. And it is certainly by this time of when this came out, it was a... It was certainly at least a, a subgenre or a, a trope in porn, if that... Yeah, there's tropes in porn. But the idea being that... I don't know where it grew out of. I've thought about it quite a bit, which is an odd thing to say. But it is, it is simply that. It's where, it's where the, the person being penetrated in porn goes from anal sex to oral sex without any sort of break or intermission. And there's actually a fairly... there's deliberate camo work done to demonstrate that there are no cuts and i who knows i think some of it may kind of have come out of like gangbangs where people switched positions and so that happened i wonder if it i wonder if it wasn't something that came out of prison right i wonder if that's a, a possibility of it and then the other thing that i guess is part of why it's eroticized is it's uh it's sort of it's it's a demonstration of really unrestricted access to someone's body. You can use me however you want to use me, but I find it very interesting, and I think it's worth bringing up because the girls in this are very early on talked about as porn stars, and because not this exactly, but this this uh, ass to mouth connection in porn is eroticized and is is something that is not i wouldn't say it's a popular genre but it's certainly not a marginal genre in the way that like pregnancy porn or older like grandpa whatever porn um it's major studios still you know produce it i don't really know what, what else to say about that other than I, I think that's interesting. And I think, I guess I'm qualified to say that. Uh, I wrote my, my dissertation affair about it, if it was about porn. That genre at least gained popularity and traction with the rise of internet porn. Why that is exactly, I don't know if I could say. Um, but I've also really thought <laughs> it was long interesting that uh, um, I mean, asked him out his ATM, which is... So an acronym that is like profoundly linked with capitalism as an automated teller machine where it's like, shut up and give me my money. <laughs> you will do this for me. No. You're really hard to get capitalism into this. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It's just there are jokes that board stars or people in the industry make sometimes about like, you know, you know, you've been in the industry too long or, you know, you're watching too much porn when when acronyms that mean things to other people <laughs> mean very different things to you. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's worth saying, I think it's worth mentioning, it's really the only other existence of something ass-to-mouth that I've seen that certainly would have been established by 2009 when this came out or earlier when he wrote it. Rise of internet porn, at least in the U.S., really came with broadband. So like early 2000s, mid 2000s, when it really kind of hit stride. Thoughts? It feels like the overall spectacle of all of it. Like it feels very similar, actually. What you're saying feels similar to what we were saying earlier about putting out gender stereotypes or that sort of thing that it didn't comment on any of these things. It just took the most... I don't know, extreme or offensive type of spectacle that they could think of to put out there and just laid it out there. 
I, and I, I left that off the list, but surely that is a piece in porn of it, is the spectacle of it. And they make, when I say the, the camera work of this elaborate, we're going to follow so we know that there's no edits, so we know that this happens, very much is like a spectacle. Oh, let's, you know, there's talk about porn as being the relentless pursuit of making visible what is typically rendered invisible. So it's, so without those edits and with POV and all the point of view approaches and things like that, that certainly I would say is a piece much more important than like real life. Cause it's like the spectacle of, Oh, look at how dirty this porn star is, which isn't that much of a stretch, right? Oh, she'll do, I don't know, whatever he'll do, whatever. And we have escalating hundred person gangbang, 500 person gangbang or whatever it is. And so to have that be sort of this little mini spectacle kind of trope, sort of like how big can the dildo be kind of thing. For sure, that's within porn is, is a spectacle component. And that ties back to something we saw in Cam too, which was this idea of just extremity and people wanting more and not necessarily even things that are sexual so much as more. Yeah. Yes. Good call on Cam. Anyhow, another piece I'll say is, I find it interesting that I really felt that this film was devoid of sexuality and the only other place that I can think of that has anything sort of similar to this, exactly similar, whatever, there's some sort of literal similarity is porn, which is an entirely or almost entirely sexual genre. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. The spectacle component overlaps both of those experiences. And I, I also want to just say that I wanted to introduce that because moving forward, the third film ends with Brie Olsen as a porn star in the film as an actress. So there is a fairly prominent, or there's some sort of thread of sexuality and pornography and the pornographization of stuff. I don't oh, know. Gosh. Running through the trilogy. Absolutely. And I haven't seen the third, so don't give away too much. Okay. Um, but the, in the second one, I mean, there's a super strong also, there's a sexualization of the first movie, even though the first movie itself, I think, wasn't, it didn't sexualize itself, but someone else sexualizes it, which is, again, what happens when you unleash this. Yeah, I just keep going back to the guy who harasses them in the car, where the only sexuality we get is this really toxic, like... Oh, yeah, I saw you. I'll fuck you and whatever, all this. They really recoil. And like you said, he really looks them up and down. I would almost argue, though, that his look of looking them up and down, we can understand it as a sexual assessment, that sort of look. But I think it's really more of a, in hindsight, it's more of a specimen look. Oh, are you healthy? And then he asks, I think, I mean, clearly he asks, are you relatives? Because apparently it would be over the line to sew sisters together. I thought he wanted them to be. I thought he was disappointed that they weren't, but oh, really? I don't know. Oh, well, that's interesting. And on that note, I think so. You can pontificate whether or not it's acceptable or not if you're going to create a human centipede, whether or not to do it with relatives, (laughs) (laughs) and how you can get capitalism in there some way, right? Somehow. (laughs) Uh, Yes, and just to clarify, I really don't think it was in there. I just wanted to be in there because I feel like there's some sort of metaphor there. But anyhow, um, we always thank you if you're actually listening. In this case in particular, we very much thank you. We hope if you watch the film for so you could listen to the podcast, we really appreciate it. And we will at some point come back for the Human Centipede 2 second sequence. And we are hoping to make it worth your while if not for watching the films, but for the discussion to endure these films in particular, which people seem to find still particularly reprehensible. All right. This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. My name is Marshall Smith. I'm joined by Laura Patterson. And you can find us on social media, Instagram at Collective Nightmares, Twitter at Collect Night, N-I-G-H-T. Please, if you would, we'd love it if you would rate or review us on iTunes or anywhere else you find your podcasts. And if you will subscribe or rate or review us, or ideally all three, and just show us or send us something that shows you've done that, we'll send you swag as a thank you. 
horror films are our collective nightmares. It's a we're, it's a learning curve. Oh, it's fine. Thank you for doing the learning part at first. I'll <laughs> I should learn it too at some point if we like keep using it. Will you like force me to learn it one day? Uh, It'll be a struggle. I'd love to. It's up there with rock climbing and. I was kind of hoping you would as we're starting out because I don't really know what I'm doing either. But <laughs> I guess <laughs> I could. That's like the worst part. It's like better to learn something when at least you're with somebody who knows how to do it. You can like sponge off their previous failures. Okay, well, I'll try this. You turned quite a bit up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have a really hard time. It's like a, at least I'm identifying it as a thing I don't like about myself and how my brain works. And my mom has it super bad too, so I can't figure out to what extent that's genetic and learned. But I can see it so strong in her. What is that? Not wanting to learn things, or figure out how to do stuff. Like that part of your brain that just shuts down, like, eh, I want to do it. Let somebody else do it. Yeah. Do like learning stuff? Just not. It. Just not. Yeah, like a giant category of things that huge, <laughs> huge that I'm not realizing are like massive holes, massive. Which is what technology? I don't know. So many things. So many things. I hung curtains the other day though by myself, like the or the snap it like the snap in things. Isaac did the first one. It was kind of the same thing. I was like, will you please just show me how to do it? Like, don't make me learn it from the book from scratch, because that just is going to hurt too bad. But like, show me how to do one, and then I'll do the rest. And I did. Okay, well, that's something. Yeah, it totally was, because it was awful. And the whole time I was like grumpy and swearing at myself, and I still did it. I was very proud of myself. By the end, I learned some things. Oh, well, that's good. Mm-hmm. There was something else like that, too, recently. Oh, I put the camera, Noah's camera, the, like the bike camera thing came with like a bike mount. And I opened the box, and there were, like, several different mounts, you know. One was, like, a handlebar mount and, like, five different mounts. And looked at them and thought, I can't do this. People apparently can, but there were no instructions. And it was, like, it's just... People can. I guess I'm not one of those people. Like, I can't do it. And I thought, no, Laura, you must be able to. You must. Just sit down and figure it out. You can do it. And I, I sat there for a very long time, half an hour, with making zero progress. I'm like, no, I just can't. And then finally I got it. And once I got how the one little piece works, it's like all of a sudden the puzzle fell into place. And it was actually very intuitive at that point. And I thought, oh, look, I did it. And I learned something. And next time I see a little contraption that looks like that, I'll know how it works. That's a long haul. <laughs> like I said, I blame Cleveland. <laughs> Somebody should have told me when I was 10, but this is no way to live. I blame Cleveland. All right, is this running? Yeah. I blame Cleveland and like gender norms. Also in Cleveland. I have an article that's specifically about... It is Wolf on... This is Naomi Wolf and Radical Sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, radical heterosexual women, too, must give up gender benefits, such as they are. I know scores of women, independent, autonomous, who avoid assuming any of the risk for a romantic sexual approach. That's not the part I was here. I've watched myself stand complacently by while my partner wrestles with a stuck window and a tractable computer printer maps or locks. Sisters, I'm not proud of this, and I'm working on it, but people are lazy, or at least I am. Yeah. And it's easy to rationalize that the person with the penis is the one who should get out of a warm bed to fix, this, fix the snow on the TV screen. After all, it's the very least good to me personally in compensation for <laughs> centuries of virtual enslavement. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Ohio taught me not to want to do anything. Like, that laziness was so encouraged. Oh. Like, you shouldn't learn, and you shouldn't want to accomplish anything and then gender norms taught me that conveniently one way to escape this was that men would take on this whole variety of tasks that I didn't have to do and I thought that was really cool how I could just sit back and not have to worry about any of it because I thought I was getting away with something and now I realize I was not I was just letting myself fall into this hole of incompetence (laughs) it's so hard to dig out of step one is acknowledging you have a problem step two is fighting through the curtain hanging 
with them being proud of yourself, even though it's something really a 12 year old could have done, but I did not have that opportunity as a 12 year old. That's good. Yeah, no, no. Good for you. That's and I good. did the bike mount. I almost texted you actually when I got it, but I didn't know how to explain how proud of myself I was because, because I really did sit there at a standstill for a half an hour with absolutely no progress whatsoever. I applaud your diligence. I mean, that's hard to do when you're... Yeah. It's hard to know that this is made for people to use, and I feel like I'm kind of smart. Like, I should be able to figure it out then. And I have use of all my limbs. Like, you know, I don't have any major problems. And yet I'm sitting there like, no, it actually feels completely impossible. A mad scientist kidnaps and mutilates a trio of tourists. A mad scientist kidnaps and mutilates a trio of tourists in order to res. God, one more time. I'm really having trouble with trio of tourists. <laughs>